Well, today is the last Sunday of the Epiphany season, also known as Transfiguration Sunday. This season of the church helps us to see all the ways that Jesus is revealed to us as God's Son. It begins with the Epiphany, the arrival of the Magi, who are guided by God and recognize the infant Jesus for who he is, Emmanuel, God with us. Immediately after that, we celebrate Jesus' baptism at the Jordan River, when a voice from heaven spoke, saying, This is my Son, the Beloved. With him I am well pleased. If Jesus had had any lingering doubts about who he was, this voice, paired with the descent of the Holy Spirit in the shape of a dove, would likely have been enough to settle the question for him. And today, this season of Revelation is given a capstone with Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain. This event on the mountain is found in the first three Gospels, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And biblical scholars have long thought that there is a direct literary relationship between these three accounts of Jesus' life, with the authors of Matthew and Luke borrowing heavily from Mark, sometimes word for word, while also expanding on it with new details. It's no surprise, then, that a number of other literary tropes show up in all three of these Gospels. Now, I could spend a whole semester talking to you about these Gospel parallels. There are lots of courses on them, and plenty of books have been written on this subject, if you're interested. But the one I want to center in on today is what's sometimes referred to as the Messianic secret or messianic mystery. Those times when Jesus does something remarkable and asks the people who have seen it not to talk about it afterwards. Prior to this episode on the mountain, Jesus has done this three times in Matthew, each time after he performs a healing miracle with a stranger. Let's think about that. Jesus is going out and about in the world. He's preaching the kingdom of God and gathering disciples around him as he does. On the face of it, there's nothing too unusual about this, especially in a historical context where lots of religious movements sprang up around charismatic leaders. But Jesus knows who he is. He knows that he is the divine Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. And for whatever reason, he is not quite ready to share that knowledge with the world at large. Even at his baptism, where a voice spoke from heaven, we easily get the impression that Jesus is alone with John the Baptist, and possibly even that only Jesus heard the voice. And yet, on occasion, Jesus is compelled to be his full divine self, to use the powerful gift of who he is to heal. But for whatever reason, he is only able or willing to be his full self when he's with strangers. There's something that resonates with me about this. 
as I'm sure there is for many of us. Who among us hasn't had a personal truth that was so big, so integral to the very core of their identity, that to share it meant possibly changing how you were perceived by those closest to you forever? A truth that, on the one hand, dare not speak its name, and on the other is screaming inside you to be heard by everyone. When you have a truth like that, a stranger is often the safest person to share it with. But something different happens in today's gospel. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his closest companions, with him to the top of the mountain, where he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. The allusions to the story of Moses at Mount Sinai would have been obvious to the early Jewish readers of Matthew's gospel. Moses waits on the mountain for six days before God comes in a cloud. Jesus takes his disciples up to a mountain after six days before God comes to them in a cloud. Jesus' face shines like the sun, just as Moses did after his encounter with God prompting Moses to cover his face with a veil. Matthew does this to make a point. Whereas Moses went up the mountain to receive the law, Jesus goes up to confirm once and for all that he is the embodiment and fulfillment of not only the law, as symbolized by the presence of Moses, but of the prophetic hope of Israel, symbolized by the presence of Elijah. In the chapter immediately before this story, Peter has guessed at Jesus' divine secret, and Jesus, in turn, confirms it. But John and James are likely hearing this news for the first time, and there is absolutely no denying the truth of who Jesus is any longer. To borrow the language from my own community, Jesus has come out. And though he will still ask his disciples not to tell anyone, it is the last time he asks anyone to keep his secret. This part of the story is a turning point for Jesus. From here on, Jesus' face is pointed directly at Jerusalem towards his passion and crucifixion. He can no longer try and hide who he is or why he is here. His truth can no longer be contained. Once again, I think this is the kind of turning point that many of us have experienced, where the risks of being our authentic selves finally seem worth taking, outweighing the potential safety of keeping our truths hidden any longer. The question that comes next both in our own lives and on the mountaintop, is how? How do we live in this new world, this new reality, when we have finally acknowledged the truth of it? Peter does what Peter always does. He gets it wrong. 
His instinct is to slow everything down, build huts for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. He wants to keep everything as it is, where it is. But, and this is my favorite part of Matthew's version of the story, God interrupts Peter saying, this is my son, the beloved. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. It is the exact same language from Jesus' baptism with one vital addition. Listen to him. The disciples fall to the ground overcome by fear. I resonate with this too. When we acknowledge the truths of our lives that are too powerful to be contained, fear is a genuine, natural, and perfectly understandable response. But when fear paralyzes us, we cannot live into the fullness that God has in store for us, which is why Jesus is there, this Emmanuel, God with us holding out his divine hand to the disciples, encouraging them. Get up, he says. Do not be afraid. I love the order of this. Jesus doesn't try to erase their fears before starting out on their path to Jerusalem. Sometimes the best way through our fear is to start moving towards what we know is true and to bring others along the journey with us as we work through our fears together. My friends, at the beginning of this 250th anniversary year for both our building and our community, as we end this season of revelation and begin to look towards the season of Jesus' trials and sufferings, we may be asked to do work that scares us. We are tasked not only with celebrating our past, but reflecting on it, learning what uncomfortable truths have yet to be acknowledged and deciding how we might face them together. With the help of our own community, its leaders, and community partners like Justice and Sustainability Associates who will be our guides through this process, we will work to uncover the untold stories, the truths of the people who built this church and learn to tell those stories with the honor and respect they deserve. It will be difficult work. It may even be scary. Our instinct may be to, like Peter, build a hut and keep everything the way it is, the way we have known it and not face the uncomfortable truths we encounter. But we have our Jesus, our Emmanuel, our God with us, who is holding out his hand and saying, get up, do not be afraid. And when we acknowledge the truths that can no longer be denied, only then, can we live into the fullness that God has in store for us? Amen. Amen.